Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I start, if you want to support the podcast, you can. For only $3 a month, you can support the podcast. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. I do this full time, so every dollar helps. I would also like to give a shout out to the Advent of Computing podcast. My background is actually computers. I did spend some time as a journalist, roughly a decade, but before that I used to be a network administrator, making networks for the diamond mines in northern Canada. So this is a really interesting podcast to me because I've been around computers since my Tandy 1000 back in 1990. So go check it out, it's on all podcast platforms. Now today, I'm looking at the Kanasataki Resistance, which began on July 11th, although technically in April, 1990, and lasted for 78 days until September 26th. Over the course of those days, one person would die, and the issues relating to the use of Indigenous land would be thrust to the forefront of the Canadian news cycle. And while the collective name for this is the Oka Crisis, I'm going to be calling it the Kanasataki Resistance, as it was not a crisis, but a group of people standing up to protect their land. I'm not beginning with the crisis, or the resistance. Instead, I'm beginning centuries before those fateful days, when the indigenous were first beginning to deal with Europeans encroaching on their lands. The Mohawk people had first begun to settle in the Montreal area in the early 18th century, moving north from their homeland in the Hudson River Valley. As they moved into the new lands, they began to displace the Huron people, who had been weakened through prolonged conflict with the French. Soon after the Mohawk arrived in the land, the governor of New France would decree in 1717 that the lands encompassing the Pines and the Pine Hill Cemetery, considered sacred ground by the Mohawk because many ancestors were buried there, would be given to the Society of the Priests of St. Sulpice. I apologize if I didn't pronounce that correctly. Two decades later, the original parcel was expanded on, and it was also stated that the land had to be used for the benefit of the indigenous who lived there, which also put the indigenous under the control of the Sulpicians. After New France was conquered by the British in 1760, the Mohawk began to pursue recognition of their land rights with British officials. They stated they were living under unfavorable rules that threatened their livelihoods. One request was that they no longer have to be subject to the rules of the Sulpicians, but that their requests, but their requests were ignored, and the Sulpicians began selling the land to white settlers. For the next century, the Mohawk would pursue the right of the land, and would fail to gain recognition of their claims. They would petition Governor General Lord Elgin in 1851 to recognize their right to the land, but this was denied. In 1858, the province of Canada extended the official title of the land to the Sulpicians. In 1868, and I'm going to pronounce this the best I can, Joseph Onasakenrat, who was the chief of the Mohawk people in the area, wrote a letter to the seminary stating that nine square miles of the land had been reserved for the Mohawk in the trust of the seminary, and the seminary had ignored and neglected that trust by giving themselves sole ownership rights to it. With nothing being resolved, the chief would launch a small attack on the seminary one year later after giving missionaries eight days to hand the land over. 
the standoff was ended when local authorities came in to remove the Mohawk from the seminary area. The land was also classified by the federal government as interim land base and not a reserve, which would have allowed it to be covered under the Indian Act. In 1881, the federal government attempted to end the land dispute at Oka by resettling Mohawk families in northern Ontario, moving 35 of the 120 families in the late fall of that year. The families were promised food for the winter and seeds for the spring. Instead, they were given food for two weeks and forced to live in tents the entire winter. Several Indigenous would die from disease and hunger. In 1910, the Mohawks took their case to the Quebec Supreme Court, then to the Court of the King's Bench in 1912, then to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, only to have their case ruled in favour of the Sulpicians each time. The seminary continued to ignore the Mohawk rights to the land, and they sold off the territory in 1936 amid protests from the local Mohawk community. Two decades later, the Mohawk had seen their land reduced from 687 square kilometres to just six and the Mohawk ownership of the land, known as the Pines, continued to remain unresolved. Soon after this, in 1959, the town of Oka would approve a private nine-hole golf course on part of the disputed land. The project would run along the border of the Pines and the Mohawk burial ground that was still in use and had been for over a century. The Mohawk attempted to file a suit to stop the development, but this failed. The town then constructed a parking lot and golf greens right next to the cemetery. In 1975, the Mohawk filed a land claim asserting their Aboriginal title to their ancestral lands, but this was rejected since they had not held the land from time immemorial, and therefore the Aboriginal title was voided. In 1977, the Kanasataki Band would file an official land claim with the Office of Native Claims over the land. The claim was accepted for filing, and funds were allocated for research on the claim. Unfortunately, nine years later it was rejected on the basis that it had failed to meet legal criteria. Three years later after the rejection, the Club de Golf de Oka announced it was expanding the golf course with another nine holes. The Mohawk people were not consulted at all over this expansion, with the rationale being that the Office of Native Claims had rejected the Mohawk claim to the land three years previous in 1986. The project would be postponed for one year after the Mohawk began to protest, and the Quebec Minister of the Environment did express his concern over the project. This led to negotiations pending a court ruling on the legality of the development. In 1990, the court ruled in favour of the developers, and it was announced that the remainder of the pines would be cleared out so that the golf course could be expanded and 60 condos could be built. Many did not actually approve of this plan, including many residents of Oka, but the mayor's office did not listen to any of these concerns. Work would begin in March of 1990. Now I'm going to go to a clip from CBC. In fact, I'm going to be having a few clips for this entire episode. And I would like to warn anybody listening that uh, unusual for my podcast, where I don't actually usually swear, there is some swearing in the news clips. So let's go to April when things started to heat up. They marched on land they say is theirs, 200 Mohawks from the Ganesatagwe Reservation. They're protesting plans to expand the golf course in Oka. The Mohawks say the plan encroaches on their land. Even the golf course is ours too, but was illegally taken from us. 
through a private bill that was passed in 1959. Grand Chief Clarence Simon says the golf club is just part of the claim. It covers the Mirabel, Saint-Eustache, two mountains, Oka, Saint-Placite, Saint-Benoit, Saint-Armas, all the local areas that will receive the notice that we are here claiming this land. The Mohawks say they need the land. Their population is young and expanding. I am fighting for the land for my children. But for the time being, Jean Ouellet says the land belongs to the municipality. The mayor says the ownership question must be settled by the federal government. We think the land belongs to us, and he, he says, or pretends, that the, the land belongs to the Mohawk. Uh, we'll ask the federal government to really um, sit down with us and try to settle this point once and for all. The Mohawks ended their march here. This is where the golf course will be. It covers 60 acres of land land the Mohawks are determined to keep. I will occupy this land for what it takes. He has to prove it to me that it's his, and I will prove it to him that's mine. According to what we have and the papers we have on hand, it belongs to the Minsvalle Oka. There's already been some protest. The golf club was vandalized twice. The native Indians here say they'll continue pressuring the mayor of Oka to stop the expansion of the golf club. They say they're ready to do what it takes to achieve their goal. Louise Massari, CBC News, Oka. After centuries of being ignored, losing their land, and now about to lose sacred ground for condos and more holes on a golf course, the Mohawk erected a barricade to block access to the area. In April, a court would rule that the barricade had to be dismantled, and this would be ignored. The Mohawks of Kanesataki and Oka put up this barricade eight weeks ago. Someone destroyed it. So the Mohawks brought in these concrete blocks. They say they're determined to keep them here. What you are looking at here is a statement by the Mohawk people of Ganesadaga that this entire area here is our land. But that's not clear to everyone. This land is not recognized as an Indian reserve. The municipality of Oka says this is public land with a public road. Oka wants to lease or land to the golf course nearby. The owners of the golf course want to expand, add another nine holes. When those plans were announced last summer, the Mohawks showed how they felt. The federal government stepped in. Negotiations started, but they broke down in November. Now the Mohawks say they've surrounded the area with 24-hour surveillance, scouts, CB radios car patrols. Yesterday, the municipality of Oka took out an injunction against the Mohawks. It says they must remove the blockade and the signs. Uh, for sure, we don't wish any confrontation. And the possibility is there. Yes, the possibility is there. We're afraid of it, but what can we do? I mean, we can't, we can't stand while uh, public roads are blocked. If I have to die for Mohawk territory, I will. But I ain't going alone. Are you armed? No. The creator will provide. Oka municipal employees have orders to remove the barricade over the weekend or on Monday at the latest. They say if they encounter any resistance, they will call the Quebec police force. Paul Carvalho, CBC News, Oka. A second court order would be issued on June 29, 1990, and that too would be ignored. Jean Ulouet, the mayor of Oka, demanded there be compliance with the order, but the Mohawk defending their land refused. John Chacha, the Minister of Native Affairs for the province, would state in a letter his support of the Mohawk. He would say, 
These people have seen their lands disappear without having been consulted or compensated, and that, in my opinion, is unfair and unjust, especially over a golf course. On July 11th, Mayor Ulouette would ask the Quebec Provincial Police Force to be called in to deal with the Mohawk protest, stating there was criminal activity at the barricade. At the same time, the Mohawk Warrior Society had amassed at a barricade, but in accordance with the Constitution of the Iroquois Confederacy, asked the women of the band, who were considered caretakers of the land, whether or not the arsenal they had amassed should remain at the site. Things would escalate heavily on July 11th when an emergency response team deployed tear gas canisters and concussion grenades at the barricade to force the 30 amassed Mohawk to disperse. The support for, for this particular uh, roadblock at Oka, what is happening there? You can hear firing. I'm not sure if it's weapons or if it's... Uh, yes, it is. They're firing at us. Uh, I can see... I'm trying to get behind a tree, actually, and the tear gas is starting to come. But as you can hear, there's uh, semi-automatic weapon fire. Now, is this police firing or Mohawk firing? It appears to be. I can't tell for sure where it's coming from, but it appears to be coming from the police lines, yes. They're not firing at people, but they're firing on the ground. I'm going to move back because the tear gas is getting to me. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Laura, are you, are you able to continue? Not right now. Sorry. Okay, Laura, take good care of yourself now. Thank you. Gunfire erupted from both sides, and Corporal Marcel LeMay would be killed. An inquest would find that the bullet that struck and killed him had hit him in the left side below the armpit in an area not covered by the bulletproof vest. Prior to this, there were claims that the Mohawk had deliberately shot him in the face, and it is not actually known which side actually killed him with the bullet. After 15 minutes, the police fell back, leaving six cruisers and a bulldozer. The 30 armed Mohawk would soon be joined by 70 other Mohawk. The number would eventually increase to 600, with the Mohawk seizing four police cars and a front-end loader that they used to crush the cars and form a barricade across the highway. The Mohawk would then choose Ellen Gabriel, who was chosen by the Kanasataki Nation as the official spokesperson of the resistance. Good evening. It was a bloody day at the Mohawk Indian community in Oka, Quebec, near Montreal. Provincial police in riot gear stormed the barricades the Mohawks had set up. There were clouds of tear gas, a hail of bullets, and in the midst of the battle, a policeman was killed. All this because of a dispute over a piece of forest the Indians claim is theirs. A forest town council wants to bulldoze to expand the local golf course. Just a quick look now at the lay of the land. There's the present golf course on the right. The forest that would be chopped down for more golf is on the upper left. The Indians have blocked off both ends of the road leading to that forest. Tonight, it's a standoff. The situation very tense. Our coverage of the day's tragic events begins with Neil MacDonald. The Quebec Police Force SWAT team moved in at dawn, trying to enforce the court order despite the provincial government's stated sympathy for the Indians of Oka. And if ever a police operation was to go tragically wrong, it was this one. Police used gas, then bullets, but they weren't prepared for what met them. Dozens of heavily armed Mohawk men determined to hold what they say is their sacred ground. There were women and children behind the barricades when the attack started, and that only added to the Mohawk rage. What kind of people are you? There's children here, and you're shooting tear gas at us. 
We're not, we're unarmed and you're aiming your weapons at us. What kind of people are you? Just, just go for it. That's the root of all the evil. Read there. That is, that is, that is, that is what are, that, that's what's killing our people. These people here who don't give a shit about playing, hitting a ball around the damn field and don't give a shit about anybody's rights. No Indian has a right on this, on this land. Well, that's got to change. Because it, it's Mohawk land. It's our land. There's a little bit left. They're sucking the marrow out of our bones. That's, that's obviously what they, they all want. They want everything. Quebec police moved in to tear down the barricades, armed not just with guns, but with a court injunction, too. Town council got the injunction last month, ordering the Indians to clear the road. Late yesterday, the mayor insisted the police enforce it, and the provincial government is backing the police all the way. As for town residents, they're bitterly divided about the whole thing, and not very happy things got so out of hand. Paul Workman now with that story. Many people in Oka can't believe the violence they've witnessed is over something so simple as a golf game. A plan to expand the municipal golf course from 9 to 18 holes. But on land, the Mohawks claim is theirs. Yeah, I think most people sympathize with the Indians. There's a few that uh, don't, but I think most of them do. We've been always good neighbors and uh, getting along together, and uh, I just don't like things like that. People here have watched the conflict for the last four months never thinking it would end like this with such violence. This resident crossed police lines to retrieve her four dogs, an odd sight in the no-man's land between armed police and defiant natives. The police, she says, should never have come. I feel that the police should have minded their own business, give the Indian their land, and everybody could go home and relax. In fact, the police moved in after a written request from the mayor of Oka, Jean Ouellette. In his letter, he said the natives had illegally seized public land, had harassed public employees, and had committed criminal acts, and the town had put up with enough. Today, the mayor was nowhere to be found. It's reported that he was taken away for his own safety. I think, for, in my personal opinion, as a native person, I think the federal government has, has um, a responsibility to uh, step in and really try. The Indians have asked the federal government to intervene to negotiate a compromise before there's more violence. With news spreading about what had happened at the blockade, and with a network of communication set up between the Mohawk villages, the local Mohawks were joined by Indigenous people from across Canada and the United States. The Mohawk were still told to dismantle the barricade, and they continued to refuse. The provincial police force would erect its own blockades on Highway 344 to restrict access to Oka, and the Mohawks would erect a barricade over Mercier Bridge in solidarity with the Oka Mohawks. This blockade sealed off a major access point between the island of Montreal and the southern suburbs of the city. This blockade would result in the violent confrontations between the Mohawk and the commuters in Montreal. Eventually, the Mercier Bridge and routes 132, 138 and 207 were all blocked, causing massive disruptions in traffic in Montreal. The blocking of these routes would result in residents of Chetigway burning an effigy of a Mohawk warrior while chanting savages. One radio host increased tensions by claiming Mohawks couldn't even speak French. In another incident, an estimated crowd of 10,000 people marched through Chateauguay, demanding the blockade on the bridge be removed. That being said, many people sympathize with the Mohawks across Canada. Indigenous people organized their own protests and blockades, and in British Columbia, roads and railways were blocked, bringing transcontinental traffic to a standstill. 
On August 8th, Premier Robert Barroso would hold a press conference and announce that he was requesting federal military support. Prime Minister Brian Mulroney was reluctant to have the Canadian forces involved, but under the National Defence Act, the Solicitor General of Quebec had the right to get armed forces to maintain law and order. On August 14th, the RCMP would take over control of the situation from the provincial police force, but they were prohibited from using force. Quebec-based troops were then at the blockades, supporting provincial authorities. With the Royal 22nd Regiment taking over three barricades and arriving at the final barricade leading to the disputed area. The troops then reduced the no-man's land implemented by the provincial police from 1.5 kilometres to 5 metres. Troops were then deployed at staging areas around Montreal and aircraft flew photo missions over Mohawk territory to gather intelligence. In all, 4,000 troops were deployed and the operation was so extensive that it used up the national stockpile of barbed wire. To put this deployment in perspective, during the Persian Gulf War, 2,700 Canadian troops were deployed at its peak. Despite the escalation and display of force by troops and the increased Mohawk presence, no shots were exchanged. Good evening. At one point, there were as many as 12 native barricades in Quebec, but tonight only one is still standing. It's the one that triggered the whole dispute, the one that Quebec police tried to storm 53 days ago, the one in Oka. Mohawks erected that barricade last March. They were trying to prevent the town from expanding a nine-hole golf course on what they claim is ancestral land. Tonight, the barricade is completely surrounded by the Canadian Army. The soldiers have dug themselves in after a day of high tension and drama. It all began at about 1 o'clock Eastern time this afternoon. Army units moved in here at a location the Mohawks refer to as the North Pole. Soldiers also took this barricade on the western edge of the community. Then they pressed on toward the final blockade. It all seemed pretty easy, that is, until they reached the center of the Indian land and things came to a dramatic climax. The CBC's Neil MacDonald was there. Instead of moving on the Oka barricades by road, the army chose the terrain it likes best, the forest, moving in from behind, coming in the back way. When they rolled, it was swift. The warriors met them on a dirt road deep inside the Indian Territory. The infantry major in charge made it clear he was heading for the barricades at any cost and that bullets would be met with bullets. As soon as I'm able to move forward, I move forward. Are you moving right through to the barricades? There's a barricade down there? Yes, sir. I've taken three barricades now. The warriors were nearing hysteria at the sight of soldiers near their tribal cemetery. Somebody give me fucking permission to slug that fucking door. Get back! Get back! Then something remarkable. Mohawk women assumed command and cleared their men. Get back. Stay back. Fucking kick your ass. Stop! Shoot! Shoot! You fucker! Get him out of here! Shoot! Back! Come on! Hey! Hey! Come on, Dad! The warriors calmed down, although not much, and they took to taunting the soldiers face to face. I must be number one on the list, or well, you're number one on my list too. Nervous, perhaps? You think? You nervous? Shoot! Motherfuckers! But the Mohawk threats and rifles had little effect on the soldiers. They continued to advance relentlessly throughout the day, and by evening they were here, in the very center of the Ganasatagi encampment, 
They were at the edge of the sacred Mohawk Cemetery and near the very spot where the Quebec police officer was killed weeks ago. They were also within about a one-minute march from the main Indian barricade. And the soldiers followed the methods they'd followed all along, telling the Mohawks not to shoot first or they would shoot back. By nightfall, it was an almost ghostly scene. Soldiers behind barbed wire and searchlights digging in for the night with the promise that they won't move at least until morning. Neil McDonald, CBC News, Oka. On August 29th, the Mohawks that had barricaded Mercier Bridge negotiated an end to their blockade, which would lead to the eventual ending of the original blockade at Oka. Once the barricade at the Mercier Bridge had ended, the Quebec government refused to enter into any further negotiations relating to the original issue over the Oka golf course. Many Mohawks at Oka felt they had lost their best bargaining chip with the blockade on Mercier Bridge ending. While that blockade had ended, it took eight days for the barricades to be dismantled. On September 18th, provincial police officers and soldiers landed at Takawitha Island, near to where the blockade was happening, and the community of Kanawake. Hundreds of Mohawk met the troop at the bridge to the reserve and began to throw rocks. The soldiers responded with tear gas, warning shots, and hitting Mohawk with rifle butts. After seven hours, the soldiers were airlifted out. By the end of the altercation, 22 soldiers were injured and 75 Mohawk were injured, including children and the elderly. On September 24th, the House of Commons resumed operations after a summer break, which the Mohawk were holding out for, and Prime Minister Mulroney promised to meet some of the demands of the Mohawk. On September 25th, a man walked around the perimeter of the blockade with a stick, setting off flares that had been installed by the Canadian forces to alert them to anyone fleeing the area. The soldiers would then turn a water hose on the man, but they were unable to disperse the crowd around him. The crowd then began throwing water balloons at the soldiers. On September 26th, the barricade would end, when 30 men, 16 women and 6 children suddenly left the centre they had been staying in and arrived at Army Command. The army was surprised by the sudden appearance of the individuals and in the confusion, one soldier stabbed Juanique Horn Miller in the chest with a bayonet. She had been carrying her four-year-old sister. The incident would become front-page news across the country. The barricade would be dismantled and the Mohawk would also burn some of their guns and burn tobacco in a ceremony before leaving. Good evening. A stunning chaotic end tonight to the bitter drawn-out siege at Oka. Mohawk warriors put down their weapons and sprang out of the woods, into the hands of surprise soldiers. Soldiers who were expecting a more orderly surrender. And that element of surprise turned the end of the standoff into a series of wild scuffles. But no shots were fired and there are no reports of serious injuries. Our coverage of tonight's dramatic events begins with Paul Adams. <laughs> To begin with, it seemed almost nonchalant. The first few Mohawks out of the compound just started down the hill towards the town of Oka. Then warriors began to emerge, showing defiance instead of surrendering to the army as they were expected to do. The army was clearly unready for this disorganized exit. Then the army tried to pick off the departing Mohawks one by one. Okay, les journalistes, back off a bit. Back off. Back off. Back off, please. 
When they reached the bottom of the hill, the melee began to spill into a crowd of waiting townspeople, many of them Mohawks themselves. But managed to get through the army lines, walked smack into the arms of the waiting Quebec police. around them. I went up to one army guys and I said, is this how you're treating your, the women around here? And then, I don't know, they kicked me right here. Right there is where they kicked me. And then, so then I kicked him back and then he grabbed me by the neck. He went like this. No, I, I didn't know if he was going to choke me or whatever, but then he just grabbed me here and then he took my gold chain off and from there I, I started hitting him. Iroquois leaders said they had been told they would be allowed to go into the compound and help manage an orderly exit. They accused the army of a double cross. I think, I think something went wrong right in the beginning that our guys didn't trust what was happening and uh, this is what happened. They must, have, they must have felt a double cross or something coming down, so we'll see. The army defended what it had done. But they were supposed to walk out at that point, were they? I don't say that we're, we're not ready for that. Uh, it was not the planned thing. I think that we react really fast to the situation. And as you saw, we were able to contain them uh, inside the military perimeter, which is the limit which is where you're standing right After about two hours, the army and police finally regained control. The Mohawks still inside the army lines were gradually subdued and put on buses. The army said there were over 50 people taken away from the warrior camp, including 23 warriors. By 9.30 tonight, the army was beginning to pull out at the end of their two-and-a-half-month siege. Paul Adams, CBC News, Oka. Following the end of the blockade, several indigenous Mohawk would be charged, including Ronaldo Casapro, who had been beaten by officers after his arrest. Three of the officers would be suspended without pay, but the case took so long, the ruling came after they had already left the force. Two others were suspended but not charged. Castle Pro, who also went by Ronald Cross during the blockade, would spend six years in prison for assault and weapons charges before dying of a heart attack in 1999. Tracy Cross, the brother of Ronaldo, would be the best man at the wedding of Francine LeMay, the sister of Corporal LeMay, who had died during the blockade. Francine had reached out to Cross after reading At the Wood's Edge, A History of the Region, and she had reconciled with the Mohawk community. Another four Mohawk warriors would be charged with crimes including assault and theft, but none would spend time in prison. 
Juanique Horn Miller, the woman stabbed by a soldier at the end of the resistance, would become co-captain of Canada's first Olympic women's water polo team, and she would win a gold medal at the 1999 Pan American Games. Today, she is an activist for Indigenous rights and a prominent role model and mentor for Indigenous children. In 2015, the Canadian Association for the Advancement of Women in Sport and Physical Activity named her one of the country's most influential women in sport. After the resistance, she would carry the flame in the 1991 Sacred Run Canada, and then again in the Sacred Run North America in 1992. In 2017, she became the Director of Community Engagement for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Then there is that incredibly famous photo of two men facing each other, one a soldier and one an Indigenous warrior. Called face to face, it features Canadian Private Patrick Cloutier and Anishinaabe warrior Brad LaRocque staring at each other on September 1st, 1990. It has become one of the most famous pictures in Canadian history, with some saying it is one of the top five Canadian photos ever taken. LaRocque had been studying at the University of Saskatchewan, but went to the blockade in the summer to support the Mohawk people. His nickname was apparently Freddy Krueger, but the reporters at the blockade said he was a very soft-spoken man. After the conflict, he would remain in Montreal for some time before moving back to Saskatchewan. Patrick Cloutier was a 19-year-old private in the Canadian forces at the time, and after the photo was published, many who had opposed the blockade called him a national hero, with the Globe and Mail going so far as to say he was similar to the man who stared down a Red Army tank in Tiananmen Square. After the photo was taken, Cloutier was promoted to Master Corporal. His life would hit some rough patches after the photo, unfortunately. In 1992, he was demoted to private and had to serve 45 days in an Edmonton prison for cocaine use. He would serve in the Canadian military during the war in Bosnia, and he would see many of his fellow soldiers commit suicide upon his return. He would be discharged in 1993 after being found guilty of impaired driving and causing bodily harm. In 1995, he would appear in a softcore porno film that parodied the events that happened at Oka. Today, he works for the Canadian Coast Guard. Years after the resistance, he would state that he never supported the building of the golf course, saying, I was for the Indians. I spent a lot of time in Nunavut and with the First Nations. They're my favorite people. The military would use the photo of the two men staring at each other as a recruitment tool, and Indigenous activists use it as a photograph to symbolize strength and resistance. As for the golf course expansion, it never happened. The land was purchased by the federal government for $5.3 million. In 2001, the Kanasataki Interim Land-Based Governance Act would confirm the land in question was to be reserved for the Mohawk of the area, but it did not designate the land as a reserve though, and there has been no transfer of the land to the Mohawk people. One elder, Walter David, would say in 2020 that the Mohawk have continued to lose land to developers in the area, who cut down trees and start housing projects on disputed territory. A local developer did offer to donate 60 hectares of land to the Kanasataki as an ecological gift, and he was prepared to sell an additional 150 hectares that he owned in Oka to the federal government to transfer to the Mohawk community. This issue would spark new tensions with Oka's mayor, Pascal Quivillon, stating that such a land transfer would encircle Oka by the Kanasataki, which would lead to declining property values, illegal garbage dumping, and an expansion of cannabis and cigarette merchants. The mayor would later apologize for the comments.
A national First Nations policy, a national First Nations policing policy would be developed to prevent future incidents and help to bring Indigenous issues to the forefront in Canada. Mayor Uluet would be re-elected as mayor of Oka in 1991 by acclamation, and he would say that his responsibilities as mayor required him to act as he had. On August 26, 1991, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples was established by Prime Minister Mulroney, with the goal of investigating questions about Indian status and other issues that the resistance brought to the forefront. In 1996, the report would be released and it would state that a complete restructuring of the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people needed to be conducted in Canada. It proposed a new royal proclamation that would require the government to commit to a new set of ethical principles respecting the relationship between the Indigenous and the state. This new relationship would have to acknowledge and respect Indigenous cultures, values, and the historic origins of Indigenous nationhood and inherent right to Indigenous self-determination. Unfortunately, most of the recommendations would not be implemented by the federal government. While the recommendations would mostly not be implemented, the resistance did bring about some change in other ways. It would contribute to a new agreement between the Indigenous people and governments. It would also result in the federal and provincial governments developing greater awareness of the rights of Indigenous land and the need to consult Indigenous when it came to development. The Kanesataki resistance would also inspire Indigenous across Canada to take action in their own ways, including making demands for an inquiry into the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada, the Idle No More, and serving as a general awakening to Indigenous movements not only in Canada, but across the world. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Kanesataki resistance. If you did, please leave a rating and review. You can email me at craig at canadaehx.com and you can find hundreds of articles on my website. Just go to canadaehx.com and of course you can support the podcast for $3 a month or more. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, Wikipedia, Global News and Valor Canada. Thanks and we'll see you again next time.